Welcome back to SideQuest episode 39, Final Fantasy 7, episode 24, and back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Chance. Hey, how's it going? It's going really well. It's a nice Saturday afternoon. It's actually kind of ugly here in San Diego, so this is a good day to be playing uh, video games and to be talking about video games. Um, and today, uh, we had another big day, another huge day, I suppose you might say. And uh, featuring the submarine mission and also Rocket Town, the depths and the heights. That's right. And beyond the heights. Yeah. Right. And a dream fulfilled. And so, um, how, how about we start with well, is there anything in particular you wanted to address immediately? Um, and um, are there, sorry, my microphone's sort of acting up right now, and I'm going to. I hope I just fixed it. Um, I think I did. Good, 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 good. So could you walk us through what it is that we saw today, seeing Brood, going back to Rocket Town, a dream fulfilled, uh, the huge materia, getting the submarine, and um, also tell me anything in or tell us anything in particular that stuck out to you that you would like to discuss. I know you've, you've actually been through this part uh, for some time now. <laughs> I, I need to catch up with you. Uh, the, the submarine part I did last week, but, um, the rocket town part I just did, uh, this morning. So it's a weird part of the game in that you've, um, you've unlocked after you get the submarine, you unlock a number of, of side quests that maybe weren't possible before or weren't worth doing before. Um, at least from my perspective, um, I think you could probably start doing Chocobo racing even a little earlier if you really wanted to. Once you get the high wind, that's that's something you can kind of spend some time doing. But at least for me, I was kind of more uh, engaged with the story for that. But once I got the submarine and started to kind of explore with that a little bit, then I decided, yeah, this is this is Chocobo racing time. So that's kind of what I was doing uh, in the meanwhile here. And so that that's the other element of the the land travel, like we were talking about at the end of last time. Um, you kind of have this this little framework, right, of um, of various kinds of of physical journeys, which map kind of onto a more psychological or inner journey, um, which is like you know represented pretty literally in going into Cloud's uh, mind in the previous section, and this time now it's it's more metaphorical in that you're you know going around underwater dodging a monster which is way beyond you um fighting some really scary things down in the sunken airship so like that example of the heights that have crashed down like icarus you know into the sea and um yeah possibly uh rescuing some huge materia from the rocket ship before it you know flies way too high uh and uh bursts against meteor very little effect. Yeah, and I was wondering whether that that limited effect was because um, it to mess with magic, or whether um, it was because the huge material was not part of the attack as it was intended. What did you make of that? I I actually was curious about that too, and I I read online to see if the cutscene looks any different depending on whether you take the material or not, apparently it doesn't make a difference. And I'm pretty sure when I played this game as a kid, I had no idea how to figure out what the four digit code was. And so I don't think I got that piece of huge materia and it, it blew up into meteor and all it means is that you can't uh, get the, the final form of the Bahamut, the, the dragon summon when you go back and, and look at all the huge material that you managed to gather. So, yeah, I, I think what it what it seems to be saying is this is a flawed plan, like from the start. The the idea that you can smash a rocket full of huge materia into meteor and and actually avert the catastrophe is is simply wrongheaded. And uh, Sid has some interesting stuff to say about science and magic. Um, it sort of puts it on your radar if you haven't already been thinking about it. But I, I really don't see that as that big of a dichotomy or anything in this game. It's like, 
no matter what, you're dealing with forces which are um, transcendent uh, with respect to any human capability, whether it be magical or scientific. You're, you're dealing with something from uh, uh, a different kind of realm entirely. And um, I mean, I, I think Sid represents a kind of brave stance towards that. Like we're gonna we're gonna try to do our best, and and in a way even Shinra do as well because this is their best shot, right? But ultimately, there's you know there's a different uh, confrontation that's gonna have to happen for for the uh, for the world to be saved. Are you there? Or did your microphone finally give up the ghost? Can you hear okay. me? Yeah. Sorry, I don't know how much uh, I got there, but I, I'll just start from the beginning. Um, so along the lines of what Sid was saying about science and magic and um, along the lines of the huge materia discussion, I, w I was interested in getting your perspective on um, why the huge materia is so valuable and why is it exactly that we've been um, chasing it so often? And what does Sid mean when he says it's the accumulated knowledge of the past or wisdom of the past? And why does that make it valuable? And what use can it be put to? Besides, uh, yeah, and exactly, since it is like something like 220 times stronger than normal materia, what use can it be put to? See, I think I think that there's uh, a kind of a theory at work there that materia is the crystallized life stream, essentially, right? And so, if the life stream involves contacting um, a kind of energy which has existed and will continue to exist. Uh, outside of the instantiations in individual people, then in some way its value is is simply like inherent. Like you, you shouldn't use it um, for any purpose other than to like restore um, life to the planet, essentially, right? Like that's that's kind of the argument in a in a way that that Barrett's making at the start, like taking this materia um, artificially manipulating it, taking it out of the the stream or the the process of the planet is is detrimental to to everyone's health and and well-being, right? And so, to uh, to jettison it from the planet entirely to try to to blow up the meteor is um, like incredibly uh, contradictory or something like that, right? It's like it's an incredible waste and um, that's I think that's sort of like what you get with with Bugenhagen as well, like when he's trying to explain what the life stream is when you first go there and and I know that we're we're clued in that we're supposed to take the huge material back to him at this point, and he's going to be able to maybe tell us something more about you know what exactly it's for and what um, what might be possible still uh, since trying to fight meteor head on is, is not going to work. And so something else I just wanted to note from this time plane and last time plane for you from the submarine uh, section, but also to some extent from the rocket town one is that what's been so horrifying for you and what was such a revelation was that you were just a Sinra soldier and not Zach or, or the equal of Sephiroth, though in reality you really were. Uh, of the equal of Sephiroth, though you didn't make it in soldier through conventional means, but that when you're mowing down these troops, these Shinra troops in uh, the, the submarine, they keep saying things like you or Cloud, they recognize you specifically, it's as if you've taken the place now of Sephiroth, and they have the place of you, and it, each of them have this very interesting individual story too, and in fact, you even get to see like a captain give a couple of his guys a pep talk right before you're about to brutally murder them. And, you know, functionally in their minds as a terrorist and the bridge of the submarine. And I had a moment of compassion there 
a rare moment of video game compassion where I didn't just brutally slay them uh, for their weakness, but that, uh, you know, I did save them. And so <laughs> sorry, I'm getting caught up thinking about saving those poor, those poor men in the, the submarine now. I mean, I think I see where you're going with that. Um that sort of parallel that you can sort of see yourself in them um, based on what we now know about Cloud's backstory and all that. And right. So yeah, that was what I was going to know. Sorry. When I trailed off there. Exactly. You're now in the place sort of like Sephiroth or the recognizable hero who's known for his individuality and his individual actions, even though you just, uh, you know, disunified and and like basically went to the nut house for a little while, uh, something sort of shame inducing or highly embarrassing. But now you're, you're, people are surprised and scared of you in a unique way. And I don't know what level your characters are, but mine, mine are very close to level 50 from where the exact uh, level that Sephiroth was when we first saw him, even though I'm nowhere near as strong as he was at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, maybe you are, though, right, relative to these soldiers that you're fighting, these Shinra minions who are, are sort of just uh pathetic right and the game seems to go out of its way to to invite you to see that connection by by sort of personalizing these particular soldiers a, a bit more or these these shinra guys a bit more um and i i i think it is interesting how it gives you the option to spare them and, and take them as hostages rather than fighting them at the end there and i read about that too online to see if it made a difference to the story at all it doesn't seem like it does. So that's a little bit of a, you know, superficial thing, but at least it's making a gesture at, like, you have to make a real decision there. There's a game that's come out not too long ago now called Undertale, that uh, the whole premise of the game and the theme of the game, like, revolves around the question of whether you should be fighting enemies or whether you can find other ways to progress the story basically by being merciful towards all the enemies that you find. And so Undertale, you know, takes that exact kind of question and makes it integral to the story. Whereas here it's, it's sort of just a, an extra little thing that, you know, is worth noticing and, and all that. But, but anyway, I mean, I think the, the connection that you're making between cloud and these individuals you know, the way that they see him is potentially as he saw Sephiroth. I think that would be um, really interesting if there was also the um, the age difference sort of thing at play. Um, and in that respect, I actually think that his relationship with Sid is kind of reinforced here again. Like Sid is kind of this older version of, of who Cloud potentially could be as well. Um, and Sid has been like sort of the leader while Cloud was out of commission. So there's there's kind of a, a bit of a relationship that's developed there. Um, the other sort of alter ego, who you get a little bit of his backstory at this point, is Vincent. So if you go with the sub to the, the waterfall area, um, then you see a bit more of the story of, of Vincent's like love, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of like abbreviated uh, little romantic story plays out there. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's, there's some, there's some like gestures at that kind of relationship or, or storyline. Uh, they're not, they're not super developed though. It's it, this whole part of the game feels a bit rushed, frankly. Hmm. And could you go into that Lucretia um, side quest? a little bit and what it is that it reveals um beneath sure. the water beneath the waves yeah it's it's a bizarre little episode because i don't know personally i didn't even put vincent in my party like a single time through the whole game so he's just kind of always lurking there you know uh, <laughs> and that seems to be what he's for but um you know it is a pretty cool uh, use of the the world in that you can use the sub to get to places above ground which you otherwise aren't able to go again unless you have one of the special breeds of chocobo um, 
And so you, you progress there by kind of plunging into the depths, literally, and then sort of resurfacing. And when you go behind the waterfall, you find this kind of shining uh, light, like almost an altar uh, back there. And it seems like there's this, uh, this ghost of, of Lucretia. When you talk to them, they, they produce this vision um, of what, what Vincent was like as a, a young Turk, basically, um, first arriving at Shinra Mansion in the company of uh, the, like the body of, of soldiers and scientists. And you find out a little bit about the um, experimentations that were conducted down there in the basement, not, not much about it. Um, you see, but don't really hear. You don't see any text. You just see like little images of Vincent and Lucretia uh, sneaking around together. And then she's with someone else, uh, one of the scientists and, oh my gosh, now his heart is broken, you know, and then he's experimented on to just make things worse. Right. And then locked in the, in the crypt basically. So it's, it's a bit enigmatic. It's it's obscure. I believe that there's some much more like fleshed out versions of that story that have been released since, uh, but I am not familiar with them. And I, I mean, again, I think it's like this is a place where the designers clearly had a lot more that they might have wanted to do with the game, but they just weren't able to to put it in there. They just kind of gesture at it instead. And so, what do you think about in this this part of the game as we're revisiting um parts once known now unknown where we can receive new items and new information for example like in Bugenhagen's case and cosmo canyon also fort condor returning there also junon returning there um while also discovering new places like the submarine but what do you think of the place the place of sephiroth in all of this it's almost as if he's He's taken a backseat or fallen into the background while all these sort of proximal tasks um, take over. And in fact, Weapon seems to be the main antagonist now. And Sephiroth's sort of like plan, he's sort of like an evil Zeus, like a designer of the plan and the current stage. But we haven't yet earned the right to get at him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is this kind of... um fortress of solitude aspect to the northern cave thing right it's like you can't access it he's not coming out uh he seems to have set his plan in motion and is content to sort of um be aloof you know he's 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 not controlling cloud anymore it's unclear whether he's even able to after clouds um you know experiences with with the live stream and and sort of putting his mental uh self in order so good point i i agree yeah i mean i I don't know like i think that we are supposed to sort of forget about sephiroth for a bit It, it seems like he's not the main uh enemy anymore like he's not defeating him or not defeating him wouldn't make a difference with respect to meteor at this point so um he's he's kind of in the background and the weapon thing i mean it is interesting when you think about weapon being a manifestation of the planet itself um they you know that looks a little different than um the way that shinra is trying to deal with them by sort of like fighting against them and very uh overt ways with with giant cannons and things so you know i think we're supposed to sort of maybe be questioning uh what our what our relationship to weapon is again i think there's an echo of avalanche and weapon that might just kind of be in the background as well yeah especially when you are explicitly compared to terrorists again you are called a terrorist when you confront shinra again and they have this palpable fear of you and so and Barrett even brings up that you've come a long way since the beginning when you jump into the submarine it's like it's like when you first jumped into a train car together and he's like cloud now you're the leader i used to be the leader how things have changed and so there are echoes back 
to the beginning here, um, which I think are very, I think are very interesting. But I, I also now want to ask you a little bit about the Rocket Town episode and the uh, tale of redemption of Shara and how Shara was right about engine number eight the whole time and that she hel helps to save Sid's life now for a second time and sort of what that redemption, what you thought about that redemption theme popping up here and what its relevance was to the main narrative and how that uh, connects to your hypothesis that Sid is sort of a, an older version of Cloud. Again, getting to those versions, into that version question, those numbers questions, those type questions. I, yeah, I found it very sort of like fitting the way that Shira is there all along and she comes out and, and like physically lifts the blown up, uh, you know, metal thing off of Sid. Apparently, you know, your absurdly powerful characters are not able to lift it. You know, they're, they're <laughs> struggling with it. But then, but then Shira comes through and just like, you know, has a has an incredible physical strength that that's such that she can move it for you um yeah i found that a little bit funny but you know fitting like that seems right and uh yeah there's a kind of kind of redemption there um that she um proves right all along and it's in such a way that sid can't possibly ignore it like it seems like he always sort of knew that she was right but now <laughs> he's got the scars to prove it um and the the uh the way that this happens um as you're actually in space like he gets to to have that as well that's what he wanted all along was to be in space he sort of realizes that um and he says later like after you come down he it, it involves him realizing something about the planet as well right how how small and how in need of protection it is in the grand scheme of things so he has a kind of revelation up there um that seems, you know, connected with the way that Shira cares for him and has been caring for him all along. He sort of finally realizes that. Uh, and, you know, it's very, it's very heroic sort of music playing. And there's that weird moment where you have to solve a, a code to try to get some huge material. I mean, it doesn't really matter whether you get it or not, though. So that, that I always found kind of strange. Like, I don't know how you're supposed to figure that out without cheating, basically. Um, but anyway, did. how did you do it? Oh, no, I did cheat. Is I, I checked Jagged. It was oh. the first thing I did. I was like, yeah. I remember this from last time. This was a real bummer. I'm, I'm not going to do this again. But I, I was also thinking a little bit about what you said last time about how it, it only took you two hours to get a golden chocobo. And I thought also about how... I think it took me something like 20 hours when I was young and I was like, was that because I was really bad? And there were moments where my frustration would get the best of me and I would just continually do dumb things. And I, or I stubbornly wouldn't look something up and I would look for it myself and it would just take way too long. And the way that like when you're dumb and misguided, when you're young, you can just take way too long. But I know also I had a sense of not wanting to finish. And I, I thought about that with a lot of, things in my life. I remember it was that way sort of in graduate school even and the end of high school, like moments that are good that you want to stretch on into infinity, sort of like Spy can say, uh, our nights are endless. And so, you know, it's a bore just to sleep through them. You might as well have a story. But um, I realized so much of what I loved about this game, and this is a point that I think you made about Harry Potter earlier on, is uh, not in the game itself, but what I brought to the game and the time I spent sort of idling about in the game just to be in that world that made sense where I felt important. And to that point, I was thinking about on the second disc, how, how much of my experience and how much of your recent experience, which I've been missing, is rooted in the side quest, the things you can do in addition to just enjoy playing the video game, essentially, without pushing the narrative forward. And, and of course, getting additional items that will help you in the narrative, like the Golden Chocobo and, of course, Knights of the Round, though I was thinking about never using summons again because they really do take your time away, which I thought was a good real-world point you made about Knights of the Round. It is a time suck. Um, 
But yeah, so that's that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, I totally agree. the The whole experience of playing this game was definitely a, a much about much more than progressing the story and and getting to see what happens next. Like that, that's a powerful pull. But I think at least as powerful is you know I want to you know see what's over there and and see if I can get to there and see if I can defeat this enemy. You know, like how can I how can I optimize my my team a little better that that's also something the game clearly wants you to be engaged with you know continually like exploring um fiddling with stuff uh trying things out just playing you know that that's that's what makes it a game rather than simply a kind of interactive book or something and and so i don't want to yeah downplay that too much but at the same time you know if you're you know busy doing a lot of other things, then you want to see a, a slightly more uh, streamlined way <laughs> to get that dangled chocobo uh, and uh, to have that, that kind of satisfaction of, of, get, of figuring something out, right? Of, of seeing it uh, through to its conclusion, um, whether it be the side quest or the main quest. And uh, I, think, I think we've been striking a pretty good balance there. I know we have probably uh, rushed through a lot of things that otherwise could have been, um, you know, muddled through with with some good results as well. But you know, the last time I talked to Vince, uh, who started this project with us, like whenever we did start it a while ago, uh, last thing I heard from him basically was that he was just like having fun racing chocobos and couldn't get enough of that. And I mean, there's something to that. Like it's pretty it's pretty satisfying to just. Uh, do chocobo races and win prizes and uh you know be all sort of blinking your way along with your gold chocobo that that's cool uh it's it's something that the game you know is designed to do again at least as much as it's designed to uh sort of grip your emotions with a with a deep story or something right and these become the figures that during you know the moment in which we're imprinting to become those sort of figures for courage for us, like the Harry Potters and the clouds, the people that face the darkness within themselves. And, you know, so that when we have those sorts of moments, they, uh, they grip us. And so these characters, if we met them and we did meet them, Harry Potter and cloud, both, I think when we were like 12, also Ash, Ash Ketchum and Pikachu, <laughs> um, these characters, they become the, you know, we we would imagine them and construct construct stories and narratives ourselves. And when we went through our days, these characters would be in our fantasies and our imaginations in the same way that in medieval times, you know, probably Jesus and the saints would be as a Catholic. And so it it is interesting how much we brought our developmental level of consciousness to these games and to what extent they were like psychopomps sort of developing us into more sophisticated individuals and just along that line it's very interesting to what extent as i get better at games i get better at strategizing games and so this most recent boss battle you know i had reagan on all so i knew how to have a long-term strategy over the battle and i actually got to set up a, a, a strategy which gave me some pleasure i need to read some classwit soon on war and so um but i cast in barrier on everybody, Reagan on everybody, haste on everybody, slow on the enemy. It, it was great. I was killing it. Except for the first time I went through, I idiotically had a reflect ring on. So when I cast Reagan and barrier, both those got cast on the enemy. And it, it made me, it pissed me off so much that I ended up <laughs> turning the game uh, console off and starting over like a child. But I was pretty upset about that. But uh, So I do still make childish errors, but my strategy was on point. And that, that actually gave me quite a bit of pleasure, whereas when I would have gone through that when I was younger, you know, the, the monotony of not just cruising, cruising through a boss would have caused fear and anxiety, and I wouldn't have spent the time necessary to, you know, really wall up this guy. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard that name, Klauswitz. Um, I doubt that he uh, will have much to say about uh regen spells and and magic barriers although who knows maybe 
but the idea of strategy, right, and and being sort of able to even think strategically and not just get uh, upset by by losing and all that sort of thing, yeah, that does seem like uh, a mark of a certain amount of maturity, and like you know, fighting that boss. Yeah, he's he's a he's a pretty tough boss, no matter what you go into the battle equipped with. Um, it's it's a good question though, like how much to sort of strategize and how much more maybe you learn um, by by sort of trying things out and and getting getting to uh, make certain errors and things because you know that's that reset button is another thing that uh, Clausewitz would not have had at his disposal. So you know I think strategy might be something that is really only applicable in situations where you have to plan out beforehand. You can't just reset and try, try again. Um, and in that sense, it's, it's a little bit antithetical to uh, playing games. You know, you don't want to strategize too much. It makes it less fun in a way. Well, you know, in Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, um, the ultimate strategy is a game. And the the students seem to be spending all their time, um, you know, in these these simulations in order to improve themselves. And so the idea behind the simulation seems to be that you can run strategies at a relatively low cost, cost or uh, cost, and that you know the best strategies are that you implement are going to be ones. And this is where what I think a game is, and what Metal Gear Solid draws our attention to is that you implement a strategy, but you also have to adapt and be flexible in your implementation because new things come up. And so uh, I would say, like Nassim Tlaib suggests, you can't just rationally understand the world. You have to you know, put things out in it and go step by step in order to learn how things actually are. And that's a non-intellectual way of learning, but a very serious one. I, I definitely have been learning from my mistakes. I play um, against these bosses, but I also can appreciate now being able to lay out an actual battle strategy and implement one against the boss rather than, you know, just like button mash against an enemy and hope that it goes, uh, that it finishes as quickly as possible. Um, and so I'm also noticing sort of economies of scale when it comes to my investing in materia now, uh, as well as uh, sort of taking a pleasure in Fighting, fighting the random battles just because of how much experience they are now giving me and how much skill I get from them. I, I'm making a lot more money faster at this point in the game. And also all my material is starting to level up faster too. And so there's sort of this, this uh, sense of progress and uh, increased progress or, or sped up progress at this part of the game too. I was wondering if you also noticed that or felt it. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's something um, really satisfying about, you know, figuring out a good way to quickly clear out enemies and just going around and doing that a few times and not having to do it very often to start to see some some results, right? And like, you've got uh, some weapons at this point that have got some really either really high attack power or a bunch of materia slots on them, so you can kind of optimize your party for physical or for magical stuff, uh, for materia growth, you know, you have double and maybe even some triple growth uh, weapons at this point. That's, you know, that helps you feel like you're investing time well, <laughs> at least for me. Um, and so there's also the element of, uh, in these boss battles, I think these are some of the first ones where you can actually steal uh, items from the boss. I think that that reflect ring that you mentioned isn't that one that you either win or steal from a boss. And um, and when you fight uh, Rude, each time that you fight him at this point in the game, there's a few uh, chances. Each time you can steal uh, like probably the most powerful uh, armor in the game from him, the the Zedric. Um, and I, I'm not sure exactly what Zedric is supposed to refer to, but it sounds pretty much like um, Siegfried, right? The, uh, the dragon slayer. Uh, so as an armor, it's, it seems like a, a pretty 
uh, worthwhile one to you know strategize in the sense of you you can't kill them too quickly you have to <laughs> you have to not kill them until you steal the uh the items that they have yeah and to make sure that you continue playing the game in a way where you have a healthy respect for more than just the killing and i it's interesting i do want to hear your perspective on this undertale game and a little bit more about it because i think i've heard you speak about it some uh with one of your guests when you were going through earthbound but um well i guess i guess even before i ask that question i'm going to ask a more global question just because we uh, we didn't go through a ton of game this time around and i'm still trying to catch up with you and i know we got into the side quest bit uh of this a bit but what is it that you got out of going through earthbound and are you getting the same thing out of this because i've i think i found what I was looking for about in the middle of this program. And it, it's like I got released from a poltergeist and I could grow up again or just grow up in the first place. Uh, are you talking about Sephiroth? Well, I just, I, I think I understood the value and the message behind this game and any game like this, which is to get out into the world and, you know, do your best. And that you can't do that just by playing video games and that if you just continue to play video games, you don't, I, I, as wonderful as they are and as good a uh, part of one's life as they can be, it's like one should not be wishing that they live in a video game. One should understand that a video game is trying to push one into life. Yeah, yeah. See, I think that that is pretty much the lesson uh, that, that I feel like you get from earthbound as well um it's it's told in a very different way it's it's a very different experience for me playing these two games uh, i don't i don't um feel the same kinds of um nostalgia um uh, sense of accomplishment um, any of that sort of thing those are all sort of more immediate things um but that ultimate sense of you know what is the game really teaching you yeah, it does seem to be the same sort of general idea that you have this experience within which you are, you know, saving the world, right? But what that really means is that you don't get to stay in that world. And that that's also, I mean, I think what a lot of, of fantasy books and things are about too. Um, they might tell you a story about uh, an imagined world one way or the other. It's um, important to kind of come back to the real one when you're when you're done reading right and and in some sense i i don't know to what extent uh that might be part of I, i'm just i'm just going to kind of theorize a little but i think that that might be part of the general um abandonment of of organized religion insofar as the traditional religious frameworks tend to emphasize a an escape from mortality in the world, um, they, they don't seem to uh, answer to that sense that people have that they, they really do want to be in the world and, you know, improve it and make it better. And um, I mean, I think that there's much more to, to traditional religion than that. But I think that that's one thing that people can easily sort of put their finger on and say, that doesn't ring true to me anymore. I, I don't want that, you know. And so I think that it's really interesting the ways in which some of the deeper religious mythological um, teaching can can take place within a story which is presented as a game which is emphatically about um, you know finishing the story and and returning to your real world right and I think in a weird way playing these games then helps me go back and and read some of those um, those classic texts and you know things and and read them in a slightly more, I don't know, open-minded way. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I've been trying to do with the Earthbound project more is, is sort of like tie it to, to great texts and things. With, this, with the Final Fantasy project, it has been more about sort of the psychological, uh, scientific, if you like, you know, approach to that, that same kind of problem. Yeah, and I'm just, it, I'm, it makes me think quite a bit about our recent discussions with scholars on Dungeons and Dragons and anime and, and just these leisure activities that are narratively driven 
with these sort of cartoonish characters within these oversimplified worlds. Oversimplified meaning much more simple than the actual complex world. That there are coherent narratives, there are, you know, boundaries between good and evil, though I suppose the great works make those um, more permeable and difficult. But that these worlds are sort of like estuaries in which you grow your moral fiber and see which virtues are best expressed and which and which vices you would like to to run away from. And so it, it seems as if part of the function of this game is to help shape your consciousness and develop your culture because it's like one spends so much time playing these games uh, during such an important part of one's life. It's like middle school and high school, you know, uh, even an anime theme is to be hitting the books really hard at those times. They're so important. It's like one is about to go to college or get out of your your house for the first time or or get a professional job or develop some training for a job. And yet I remember spending hours and hours a day playing video games. And so they occupied this tremendous mental space and actual space in my life. And it's like, um, what was it that they were training me to do that, that uh, they were optimized, that they were optimized to do and that, uh, you know, the real world itself wasn't, I guess, correlate or secondary to that or after that would be, you know, once I think, if you answer that question in this way, which might be that the game is supposed to sort of prepare you to be the hero in whatever your story happens to be in life, and that you should live out a narrative in which you attempt to be good, you know, when do you put down the controller and get into the world, and how do you do that? Right on. Yeah. And I mean, that's why, again, I think that games, you know, have always been associated more so with, with childhood. Um, when, right. when grownups play games, it's, there's, there's something uh, less than pure about it at times. And I mean, I think that one answer to that is, is that uh, as our sense of what, what childhood means, has um, sort of grown and, and developed like childhood itself is um, extended a lot longer than it has ever been, um, maybe indefinitely for some people, <laughs> right? right. Or, or that's sort of an option now for the first time in history uh, for, for many, many more people than it ever was. Um, then it becomes really important, yeah, to, to ask that question, to pose that question and to see ways in which games can be uh, used to transcend themselves, right? Can, can sort of contain within themselves their own answer to that question. Um, that, that does seem right to me. And, you know, it can still be fun to play games. Like I still love playing sports. I still love playing video games, obviously. Um, but I still, I mean, I think that there's other sorts of things, other sorts of activities that bring me, you know, more pleasure. One of them happens to be, you know, applying my intellect to the, the activities, um, which I sort of loved less reflectively as a kid. Um, but that, you know, again, is, a, is one activity among, among many. Well, and it's interesting too, because it's almost like, and I don't want to make this abstruse on purpose, but it's almost like the Hegelian dialectic of going from subjective to objective and thus understanding a concept perfectly, um, which, you know, we have, we have these, very, very subjective experiences growing up that actually happen to be fairly um, similar according to type, right? These imprinting experiences. That's why these games affect us so similarly. That's why we call them great, because of the similarity of effect. Um, but as we, now that we come back to these games, now that we've developed sort of the desire to analyze and we're continually improving at our ability to parse um, things out and to express what it is we see. Um, we see these games, we see not only that the effect the games had on us was a generalized effect or an effect that they would have had on anybody like us at that time, but we, we also can see the games sort of within uh, a much richer hierarchy of narrative and story with a much stronger apparatus too, right? Now, now we see 
we read Harry Potter, we understand Dumbledore is a figure for God the Father. And, you know, his, his difficulty with uh, Fudge is sort of the difficulty between Christ and Caesar always. And that's, that's good. And, that's, and going back through this game that helped, you know, and this figure that seemed like a god, Sephiroth, and everybody knew he was sort of bad, but I sort of had uh, an idealized version of this character that I carried around with me. And now that I go back to the game, you know, he's just sort of a Luciferian figure. And the Luciferian figure always loses, essentially for platonic reasons, that they just can't, you know, muster up the same support. The good people can, but they just don't, they don't continue to pursue virtue. They, they forget to do that which made them great in the first place. They move in the wrong direction. They experience the fall. And it's just so common, a motif at this point, going through these major epics, that, or, and that it's sort of the enrapturing or siren-like magic that this idealized version of this character had that I could say that probably has had some disastrous effects on other people's lives, um, you know, kind of fell away from me. And that's sort of the magic of seeing these worlds now with clearer eyes and within a scale of, you know, years and years of studying stories at this point. Yeah, and to be able to then sort of, um, I don't know, find the, find the essence of that, uh, convey it, and uh, help people to apply it for themselves, um, yeah, seems like a really worthwhile project. Um, once you sort of get into uh the the deeper um psychological mythological like threads within the story there there's there's so much there um to kind of like play around with i i agree that it's important not to lose sight of of an overarching sort of narrative um which which comes first and and specifically how that narrative uh like actually impacts what what people do in their lives uh what they're what they're like when they're not playing the game um i mean i think you know again great stories tend to help with uh reflecting about morality or or uh, you know what your purpose in life is or, or questions like those but you know clearly for our generation these video games also play that that same kind of role um the uh the other thing that I would say about um, about Sephiroth, particularly, um, is that his his story is um, you know continues to be uh, a fascinating one, uh, maybe even more so because he because you can sort of understand it better now, right? Like it's not that he's no longer interesting when you can sort of translate his story onto a, a Luciferian story or something like that it becomes maybe even more interesting, right? You, you see more aspects of, uh, of his character, ways in which he, he does and does not fit that um, sort of uh, framework or concept. And um, the, the ways specifically, like you said, in which that, that character like had an impact on you um, and how you've sort of changed your perspective on that. Like all of that is, I, I mean, really really rich it's it's not i think any less powerful than you know reading uh milton's paradise lost right and like having to confront a very interesting uh satan in in that poem or or like uh reading for me at least reading uh philip pullman and sort of learning about milton and blake and these other authors through through that story right which explicitly references those earlier works um, that might be even an even better kind of uh, analog to what it's like to play this game um, insofar as it it might proceed in your experience, those greater works, but it certainly um, is deepened and in turn helps you access. Uh, it's deepened by and helps you access those, those other works. Right. A claim made by the unions and by Peterson is that um, a a character in a story is an embodied personality and narrative. And what an archetype is, is a historical personality. And so when I say Sephiroth is like the devil, 
the devil is an archetypal personality that finds itself injected as the malevolent force in any tale. So Sauron um, in Lord of the Rings, Voldemort in Harry Potter, Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII, you know, the devil in Christianity. And so uh, what Wes, I think, is saying and agreeing with is that that archetype comes through in different ways depending on what the narrative is and depending on how good the narrative is in much more complex ways. But, but what, but I was saying, I'm, I'm now noticing sort of those commonalities. And then Wes, I think you were saying that also opens the door to a more sophisticated analysis of what's happening. You cannot change the basic overall structure of narrative, but you can watch how it unfolds in its particular way. You can't change the fact that you're looking at a rose blossom but every season it will look slightly different. And the, noticing those changes is what is the richest possible source of information. Yeah, when you bring, yeah, when you bring up the rose, I mean, that makes me think of uh, uh, the little prince, right? Like on his planet, he's got the one rose. He thinks, you know, she's the only one. And then <laughs> uh, he comes to earth and he sees that there's many, many other roses, right? Um, it's, it's kind of that that uh that process precisely that i think that's a beautiful metaphor to end on that's wonderful wes well thank you for meeting on saturday today and um you know just throw out some hate go go ram uh not uh patriots tomorrow i i'm sure you don't know but the foot the, the super bowl tomorrow wes for the other kind of football the kind i think you don't like as much and so well thank you for doing this today yeah, my pleasure. I I wasn't aware who exactly was playing. I, I did know the Super Bowl is tomorrow because you told me, and I'm, <laughs> I'm happy, to, happy to get to talk today. Uh, yeah, enjoy. All right, will do, will do. And uh, I think we're scheduled to talk again on Monday, and we got to put out another night school on our, our, our new favorite, Robert Frost, soon. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to find time. Yes. All right, till then. All right.